welcome to the show Off The Record. I'm Aram Nukumuk, the host. Thanks for tuning in. On this show, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about how to spend the money you raise effectively and what mistakes to avoid. Uh, my guests on Off The Record have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice to share from company stories, failures, successes. As a founder, you'll hear what you can do better when raising money and after you have raised the money, all in a 30-minute conversation. And if you happen to be a VC, you're in the right spot. You'll get to learn from some of your peers in the, in the industry. This is episode number seven, and I'm here with Troy Hennikoff from Math Venture Partners. Uh, Troy is the managing director of Math Venture Partners. Additionally, Troy is an active men mentor with Techstars. Troy was actually the co-founder of Accelerate Labs, which became Techstars Chicago in 2013. He also helps manage the Firestarter Fund teaches entrepreneurship at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business and is on the board of the Chicago Land Entrepreneurial Center. Prior to Techstars Chicago, Troy was the CEO of OneWed.com, the president of Amakai, and co-founder and CEO of SurePayroll.com. Troy, thank you so much for being on our show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, let's get started. So I uh, we have a lot to great uh, things that we want to go through with you today. I'll kind of start off by asking you about um, something you kind of mentioned before about investing that uh, um, almost nobody agrees with you on, which is like raising money is sometimes not the answer. I want to kind of get some more insight in terms of what, what you think about that. Yeah, so so many times we hear companies that have raised money and they celebrate the fundraise and they get all excited about it and um, or if you ask, how's the company doing? They'll say, oh, they're doing great. They just raised 10 million or 20 million or 30 million, whatever number you can pick. And I really think that's the wrong thing to celebrate. Raising money is a necessary evil because you need the capital in order to execute and become hopefully a profitable or close to profitable company. But every time you raise money as an entrepreneur, you're taking on dilution and you're raising the hurdle of how big the exit has to be before you get anything, you get any payout. And, um, and so it really bothers me that we celebrate these fundraising events more than we celebrate execution. Um, I had a, one of the companies that we invested a small amount and it's in our Math 100 program. So we invested 100K and uh, I happen to be on the board of, I rarely take board seats for the Math 100s, but they begged and I said, I'd do it. And I really love the founders. And it was about a year ago and they were in uh, Chicago for a board meeting and we were talking at dinner and they said, you know, we're doing well. We think we want to raise our next round. And I looked at them. They're almost cash flow positive. They're growing 100% year over year. They're a product growth company. So it's more about product growth than it is sales or marketing. And I said, why would you want to raise another round? Like, what would you do with the money? They're like, well, I thought that's what we're supposed to do. And I, I literally talked them out of raising the next round. And at one point, one of the founders looked at me and she said, wait a minute, I thought you were a VC. Aren't you supposed to, don't you want us to raise more money? And, you know, I look at this game that we play, this industry that we're in as a one of building long-term relationships. And I want to do what's right for the company and what's right for the founders. And raising more money is not always right for them. While I do hope to do well on this investment, this is a tiny investment. I do hope to do well on it. They may actually never need to raise money again. Um, but I want to have a relationship with them where I invest in their next company. And maybe the one after that. 
And so it's much more important that I help them make the right decisions today than I just get them to take more capital, take more capital, take more capital, because I want to deploy capital. And just out of curiosity, did they have, um, I'm kind of glad you talked talk that into them because you know if a company is performing that well already, that means that they don't sometimes need that type of uh, injection of capital, of capital. But just out of curiosity, in that specific example, did they have a, a reason to raise money? Did they have strategic reasons to do of how they're going to dis distribute or deploy that capital like that they couldn't have done it maybe short term? Well, so as with most companies, once you start operating, you have a laundry list of things you want to do. Oh, mm -hmm. We want to add these 27 features. We want to, we want to build that, um, you know, you will never, I've never seen a company that has said, oh, we, we have our entire product, uh, product vision executed on, we're done, right? People who don't know about running companies typically also aren't technologists. Many times we'll, I'll see them and they'll talk to me and they'll say, oh yeah, I need 200,000 to build the software. And I'm like, what do you mean? So, well, I just have to build the product and then I'll go sell it. I said, you realize software is never done. Software isn't a destination, it's a journey. And along that journey, you have more and more and more you wanna do. So if they had more money, could they hire more developers? So unusual for us because we really focus on customer acquisition. I'd normally have them focusing on salespeople and marketing and they do do a fair, some marketing, but it is a product led growth company. And so it's all about the product in this particular case. So could they hire some more developers and get through their to-do list of what features they want to add a little faster? Sure. Does that make economic sense? Will you get a return on that investment? I don't think so. I mean, there, there's this balance, right? You could get, you could have technical debt at one end because you're just not doing enough to keep up. At the other end, you could spend too much on the technology and not get a return on that investment. And so we're always shooting for trying to be in the middle somewhere along that continuum. And I actually think they're at the right spot in that. They're still growing over 100% year over year. They're, um, you know, they are adding lots of features. They've added a few developers. They're growing based on their revenues. They have a little bit of burn, but they have enough cash in the bank that they're fine. Um, so I think it's a balance. I don't think there's any one right answer, but it's, it's a balance in understanding that. Okay, wow, that's, that's really insightful, thanks. Um, I wanted to ask, because you've been doing this for some time and you're, you're very respected in, in the ecosystem. I'm curious, what, in your perspective, what would you say is your key differentiator, your superpower that you have that has really enabled you to be a successful VC advisor to many, many startups in, in, in your journey? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, there are many ways into the venture capital business, right? So some people come in via the finance route. So picture coming out of undergrad, going to work for an investment bank, getting an MBA, MBA, you know, getting a degree in finance, going to be an associate at a venture fund, like you are a financial analyst, you're, and you can become a partner and managing director in a, in a venture fund that way. And I love having those people on boards with me because they're really good at financial engineering, understanding deal making, et cetera. My path was one of an operator. So I started my first company right out of school. While that's fairly common today, it wasn't common back then when I did it. Um, I actually didn't know anybody else who'd ever done it. I didn't know what the word entrepreneur meant. I had to look it up in the dictionary the first time I heard it. Um, so it wasn't, it was very early. There was no shark tank. I didn't know what venture capital was. I just knew I could start this business writing software for companies and they'd pay me. Um, and I could help them solve their business problems. 
but um, so I'm an operator and I've been through many different kinds of companies, right? So I was an operator for 20 plus years. And as, from doing that, I have lots of different experiences that I can draw on that I think are really helpful to our entrepreneurs. There are a couple other ways into venture, you know, high net worth families, uh, being an associate or, uh, uh, you know, working with accelerators. I mean, there are a couple other ways too. And when I think about from the entrepreneur's perspective, what kinds of investors you want around the table, I talk about it as a football team. And I'm talking about American football, uh, for those of you in Canada. Um, because, you know, a football team, you need a bunch of specialists to execute. You need someone who can pass the ball, someone who can hike, someone who can block, someone who can kick, someone who can run, someone who can catch. Um, you don't just have a bunch of generalists like you do in a sport like basketball, which is much more five people who are all generalists. Um, and so when you're instructing your board and when you're thinking about who you bring in, you want someone who has that financial background, someone who has operating background, someone who has industry expertise, someone who's a mentor, right? And you're building this team of specialists. And I fit in that operator segment most of the time. But what makes me, I think, a little stronger than most operators is when I was an operator, I had a unique ability, at least in the time, a unique ability, because I had an engineering undergrad but I was very comfortable talking about the business. And so I could translate, I mean, so, you know, my undergraduate degree was in engineering. I was the lead developer for the first 11 years of my first company. I taught classes in object-oriented design and database structure. Like I was a serious software engineer. But on the other hand, I teach, now I teach classes in financial modeling. I teach it in, at Kellogg School, you know, an MBA, and I understand the business side. And having someone who understands both the business and technology, what can be done, what is practical, what does it cost, what does it take, and what are the business implications of that, I think is super helpful. And so, you know, way back when, when I started, I was one of the few people who could do both. Most people were good at one or the other, and I could translate. And all of the businesses that I started, none of them were like super high tech you know, inventing new technology, but they were taking existing technology and applying them to business. Sure Payroll, we were the first internet payroll company in the country. We didn't invent payroll. We didn't invent ACH transactions. We didn't invent email. We didn't invent the web browser. We put all those pieces together and created a system that allowed employers for the first time ever to go to a website, enter how much they wanted to pay their employees, have them paid, have the money transferred, have the reports submitted, Right. And so that balance between understanding the technology deeply and what can be done and understanding the business application, I think, has paid great dividends for me over the years. You, you're absolutely right. I, I don't come across that many VCs that have that technical capability or that know-how and plus the business finance side. I'm just out of curiosity. When, when you're looking at... Um, a company that's coming to you uh, for fundraise and they have their capital allocation mapped out for their technology spend. Do you kind of roll up your sleeves at that point and, and kind of get involved and see, you know, what the technology is now and where it needs to get to, how much it's going to cost over X period of time? Yeah, there are times I'll get involved. I mean, generally, one of the things that one of my pet peeves about fundraising decks is the slide that's a pie chart that says, here's how I'm going to use the money I raise. Mm -hmm. And I always tell entrepreneurs, I don't care how you use the money I raise. As long as you don't do anything illegal with it, I don't care how you use it. 
What I care about is what you achieve with it over what period of time. More than a pie chart of how you're going to spend my money, which just gets me mad, I would much rather see a timeline of what you are going to achieve and what those milestones are. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're raising $2 million, don't tell me you're going to spend a million and a half on development and 500000 on sales or whatever, however you're going to break it up. Tell me you're going to get to $1.5 million in ARR in 18 months with this kind of NPS score or this number of customers or because that's really what I care about. I'm making an investment and I wanna know what I get for that investment, not in shares and percentage of the company, but what does that company look like with this investment? Is it a pre-revenue company? Is it a $5 million revenue? Like, where is it? Because that's what I'm really trying to evaluate. Is this worthwhile based on the thing that is gonna be created with the people? It's always about the people and the capital. Mm -hmm. And so I wanna know, milestones and timelines. Do I actually dig in and, you know, question them? Can you get a developer for this much? Are you paying market rates? No, not at, if I have to micromanage an investment, that's a problem, right? I want investments that I get used as a resource and I'm happy to contribute time and to dig into um, and to help with, but I don't want to micromanage. I want to invest in strong leaders who are great entrepreneurs, building great companies and are coachable. I'm happy to play coach. I love doing that. That's why I ran the Techstars program for seven years. It was so much fun to work with those 70 entrepreneurs and help them grow their businesses. But I don't want to micromanage it. It's, it's, that is the, that's the executive team's job. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, I w- the next question I have is about um, fundraising timelines. So, We've spoken to a few people now and it's quite varied. Some people say, well, fundraising is a full-time job. You're always fundraising. Some people say you should have 18 months of, of runway when, when you fundraise. That's what should be, uh, what you should be looking for. Some people say now we just had a chat recently with somebody saying we need three years of runway uh, when, when, you raise, when you raise money. What's, what's your kind of perspective on, uh, on the belief of like how much you need to raise and how long it should last? especially with today's conditions, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, where do you stand on that? Yeah, so that's gonna vary a lot by the stage of the company. And I, and I sort of believe in both the first two statements you made. One is you are always fundraising. And two is I definitely prefer you to have at least 18 months of, of runway at the end of a fundraise. And let me dig into that a little bit. By always fundraising, I don't mean you're actively like asking people for money, but you are actively building relationships. You are actively nurturing them. One of the things I believe is investors don't invest in a point. And by that, I mean, they meet you, you tell them, here are my metrics, and they write you a check. They invest in a line, and a line is a trajectory. And hopefully, they get there by connecting the dots, by connecting the points. And so if you meet with an investor when you're not fundraising, you say, listen, I just want to build a relationship. I'd love to get your advice on a couple of things you've seen so much. And you tell them where you are. And then the next time you meet with them six months later, you tell them where you are and you ask for more advice. And then the third time you tell them where you are, they're starting to build a line. They see a trajectory, a trend. And because investors are not investing based on where you are today, they're investing based on what the company is going to be tomorrow. The steeper that line is, the better, the more likely they're going to want to invest. And the more dots they have, the more confidence they have in that trajectory. So you're always fundraising in that you're building those relationships and you're building those trajectories. 
But um, if you're going to do a round, early stage round, um, I always like to see it be at least 18 months of cash. And the reason for that is your next fundraise is probably going to take you six months. You have to allow six months, which means if you have 18 months of runway, you only have 12 months that you can put your head down and actually execute. And that's the minimum you need to get enough traction that you can come back to the market and say, I've got something. Because you're going to have to, you have 18 months of runway, but you're going to have to start talking about it in 12. You know, with times like these today where, where, you know, some capital is a little tighter and there's more uncertainty, having a longer runway is better. You know, for an early stage company, I don't think I'd say three years. Depends on how early, like pre-revenue, certainly not. Uh, we have companies that are on their series B and C and D even, you know, they raise for three years. That's fine because they're, they're much further along, much more mature. But, you know, 24 months of runway is probably a good idea in, a day, in an environment like today. Are there any risks of raising too much capital, especially in the early stage? Of course, there are lots of risks of raising too much capital. So one risk of raising too much capital is dilution, right? So if today I have an early stage company and I'll just throw out some numbers to exaggerate, to make my point. And let's say that my pre-money valuation is 3 million. You know, I could raise, let's say I raised $3 million now. It lasts me for a few years. I just sold half the company. I have a post money of six. Wow. So that one risk of too much raising too much is too much dilution. Whereas if I had raised 1 million now, that would be a quarter of the company. And then I could have made a bunch of traction and hopefully raised the next million at a higher valuation and then get a bunch of traction the next million at a higher valuation. Now, this comes down to a classic business uh, framework of greed and fear. Greed is I want the least dilution I can have. So I'm going to fundraise in increments and I'll always have a current valuation. I don't want to raise too much at too low a valuation because I'm that's greed. I want as much as I can. Fear is, oh crap, what if I can never raise again? I want as much money in the bank today as I want, right? And each individual person is going to be in a different spot on that continuum of greed and fear. And so there isn't a right answer, but you have to acknowledge that, you know, at one end of that continuum is I'm optimizing for greed and at one end I'm optimizing for fear. Um, and I think that helps, that helps me at least think about it. The other problem with raising too much money is that you spend it. And it's, I've seen this many times, companies that have raised too much money before they're ready and they just spend, spend, spend. I tend to think about stuff in, in a series of stair steps you know, first you want to you want to determine that there's actually a real problem out there. That's usually done on your own money. You know, then you want to determine can you create a solution. That's usually when you get some outside money, friends and family, angel, right? Then you want to prove product market fit. That's sort of the classic seed, right? You with the seed money, you want to prove that there you have a repeatable process. I think of it as a black box. You put a dollar in the top, you turn the crank, two dollars come out the bottom, right? That's when you want to start backing up the truck and putting a bunch of money. And I have a proven process for every dollar I put in the top, I get $2 out the bottom. I'd actually prefer it to be three or four out the bottom, but you know, we'll, uh, doubling my money with every turn of the crank is okay if I can turn it fast enough. But anyway, um, you get the idea. And um, what happens is if you get too much money early when you don't have product market fit yet, when you haven't proven that repeatable process, you end up spending a lot of money on processes that it turns out don't work. 
we have one investment that did that where they got a big round of financing from a, a fancy uh, VC firm way more than we would have done. But, you know, we thought it was interesting. Let's uh, let, it, let let's watch. And we, we co-invested with them relatively small and um, they just burned through a ridiculous amount of capital before they really had product market fit. They didn't really grow their annualized revenue very much at all. And then they burned through all that capital. They have this huge cap table, this huge hurdle for anybody to make money on the cap table. And they're going to go out and try to raise more money. Oh, so hard. At that, like, not in this specific situation, and that's unfortunate that, that they went through that. But what advice would you give um, to founders, say, who just raised a seed round in terms of how they need to evaluate each of their spending decisions on how much runway they, they might have or how that, how that might you know, bring more ROI to their business? Any kind of yeah, yeah. I have I actually so I do a series of videos on that I post on the Math website and I put them on LinkedIn and stuff. Um, and maybe we can put a link to it here to one of them here. Um, I have a a video on this. These are three minute little videos. I'll try to do this here and see if I can explain it without the whiteboard. But basically, you have some amount of runway, some amount of time until you're at cash zero. And you know what that is because you have a financial model that's predicting it. Let's say for argument's sake, it's 12 months. So I know that I'm gonna run, run out of money in 12 months. I have to start making some really tough decisions. Do I invest in this next thing? I'll call it a widget. Do I invest in this widget or not? And what I have to do, what I do is I look at how much does it cost to invest in this widget? By the way, widget could be a physical thing. It could be a salesperson. It could be new features in the product. It doesn't matter. And how long does it take until I earn that money back and start earning more from it? And very simply, if I earn that money back in less than 12 months, for instance, I'm going to hire a salesperson. The first three months, there are going to be no sales. That person's going to start getting some sales. And then he or she gets to break even. And then he or she starts making money. As long as the break even point is before 12 months, that's a net positive. Because now at the 12 month point, I have netted positive cash, which means I've actually moved my 12 month mark out some amount of time. It could be a couple of weeks, it could be a couple of months, it could be whatever. And so any decision I can make where I invest money going below the line and then earn that money back before my time out is a positive decision for me that that's something I should be spending money on. Anything that I'm investing in now that doesn't, that pays back in longer than 12 months at the 12 month point, I'm a net negative and that actually has shortened my runway for everything else. Oh God, that's a bad thing to do if you have limited cash and a limited runway. And so if, you, if you're maniacal about this and you only do the things that have a payback within the window of your runway, you'll find that you keep extending your runway because each thing that you do generates more cash in that time period. It makes your runway longer, which by the way, opens up the window for more things that you can do. Um, and so that's how I think about it when companies are on a short leash in terms of runway and how much, how much time they have until they run out of cash. And once you realize that, it actually is a really simple decision to make. You alluded to your online videos and we're definitely going to be mentioning them because there's so much great content there. Specifically, one thing that you said in one of the videos that we watched, you said, if you have an attitude that anything can be a fixed expense at a startup, you are screwed. <laughs> Can you yeah. elaborate on that one? 
Yeah. So, so I, for many years, literally like 15 years, I've been doing these talks on how to build a financial model for uh, early stage startups. It's amazing to me that there is, there are not more people talking about this and more content about how to build a great financial model. I'm not talking about projections. I'm talking about an actual model, a mathematical representation of how your business works so that we can have assumptions and we can tweak those assumptions and see how they affect our future projections. And in that talk, one of the things I've talked about for years is that, you know, how you build the income statement and you have your, you know, you have your revenue line and you have your lines and you have your cost of goods sold and gross profit. And then everybody comes down and says, I've got fixed expenses. And this is where I say that. I say, well, no, you don't have fixed expenses. If you believe things are fixed, anything's fixed in your business, you're screwed. Because it's not, right? CEO salary would be one of those things you might put in fixed expenses. Well, I got news for you. When the things get tough and the cash is tight, the first expense to go is the CEO salary, the founder salary, right? Um, rent is another thing that people refer to as a fixed expense. But if you're a good entrepreneur and things aren't going well and you can't afford your rent, you get creative. You sublease part of your space. You renegotiate with the landlord. There are lots of things you can do. You go into a smaller space. And so I call this group of expenses, not fixed expenses, but indirect expenses. If your direct expenses, that's like cost of goods sold. If you're, if you're e-commerce, it would be the product, the shipping, the boxes, the, the, maybe the labor to, to pack the boxes in the warehouse. Things that grow linearly as your sales grow. Those are direct expenses. And that's how you get to your gross profit. But this other chunk, the stuff that is like a boat anchor slowing you down, right? Because you have to have enough gross profit from your normal activity to overcome it. Don't call it fixed expenses, call it indirect expenses. You'll think about it differently. I want you to change your attitude. I want you to recognize anything in there is negotiable. Even the things you think aren't, anything in there is negotiable. Rent is a great example. I've got a five-year contract. Yeah, go to your landlord, renegotiate, sublease, figure it out. If you're a good entrepreneur, you'll figure out how to make what you thought were fixed expenses change over time when you need to. Call them indirect. I wanted to ask you a question about uh, uh, founder salaries. Um, early stage, like when you get your first break and you get your seed um, seed round funding, for some founders, that's probably going to be the first time they might uh, be able to take a, pay, like a salary payment um, that can keep them going. Um, what's your opinion on that? Like, are you okay with having founders cut a salary for them from like a, a seed round check? what things would you recommend for them to do? Like you, you, you talked about one that in a bad time, it's the first thing that you should cut. Um, but from your point of view, what's, are you okay with that type of approach for, for founders to be able to pay themselves um, when they get their first round of external funding? Yeah, so, you know, most entrepreneurs want a formula. I raised my series A or I raised my seed, how much should I pay myself? And it's not a simple formula. Let me give you a framework of how I think about it. The first thing is that the founders should be thinking about this as they make money on the exit. Their big home run, the way they're gonna make a lot of money is selling the company for a lot of money on the exit. Now you've aligned the interest of the founders with the investors. The more alignment you have in a business, the better. Not just with founders and investors, but the business and salespeople, right? Salespeople should make money when the company makes money. You have alignment. 
If you have alignment, everything, there's much less friction. So I want alignment with the founders. Now that said, I don't want the founders to feel like there is undue stress due to the fact that they can't take any money out of the business and they don't have enough money to, to pay for the rent or pay their loans down or whatever it is. And every founder's in a different situation here, right? So you might be a college student, like I was right out of school, who's 22 years old starting your first business. In that case, I actually didn't need much money. I was living at my parents' house. I had my office in the basement. I had almost no expenses. So I could afford to live on almost nothing. And it literally was almost nothing. And then I, as soon as I had enough money, I moved out and I had to pay rent, but I lived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and ramen noodles for a long time. And I was comfortable doing that, right? Today, I can't, I, if I were an entrepreneur, I couldn't do that. I have a house, I have children, I have one in college right near you in University of Toronto. I have another one who'll be in college next year. I can't live on the same salary that I could live on um, when I was 22 years old. So, but, but coming back to it, so recognize that everybody has a different, um, di different position where they are in their, um, in their trajectory over life and what their expenses are. Now, I don't wanna see a founder who's getting rich off their salary. I would much rather take that money and be putting it into hiring additional salespeople, spending additional on marketing, maybe we need another engineer, growing the business so that that founder will make much more money on the exit. And so what I try to think about is, I want the founder to feel comfortable, feel like he or she has enough money to do what he or she needs to do, doesn't wake up in the morning and think, damn, why am I doing this startup? I gotta have peanut butter and jelly again for lunch today right? Like, I don't want that because that's a distraction. Don't want distractions. But at the same time, I don't want them feeling like, ah, oh, I'm making this huge salary. I'm getting rich. I don't need to ever sell the company. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Because we will be aligned if we're aligned on growing the company and getting it to the point where we're going to have a great exit. Because we, as a professional investor, as a VC, we have to return money to our limited partners. And so we're on the clock. And we tell people that when we invest in your company, you're getting part of what you're getting is cash and part of what you're getting is our agenda. We have a fund with a 10 year life. There's gonna be pressure on you in 10 years to get an exit because we have to get that money so that we can return that money to our investors. Awesome. Uh, last question, Troy. Um, with everything that's going on uh, this year and probably gonna be going to next year with all the fluctuations in the market and the economy, what suggestions like, kind of last parting uh, advice you would give to any uh, young driven entrepreneur who's going to be raising their first round of funding in 2021? Well, hopefully in 2021, the world is going to be changing for the better. We're talking right now in November of 2020 when the pandemic is hitting record highs. I know Canada was doing better than the U.S. for a while. It still is but the, the slope of that curve is no better. I mean, Canada is, is going up dramatically quickly, as is the U.S., and um, it's, there's some uncertainty here. If One of the things that has helped a lot of our companies over the last eight months is that when they're raising money, they've positioned how they, are, how they have what I refer to as COVID tailwinds, right? So we have some companies that have COVID headwinds. That meant their business got more difficult during COVID. You could picture someone who uh, is in the entertainment business, movie theaters, theme parks, like all of those, those aren't necessarily tech businesses, but all of those businesses had serious COVID headwinds. 
right? Even restaurants with dining, in, in-person dining, et cetera. There are businesses that have COVID tailwinds. Zoom that we're using right now. Zoom exploded because of COVID, right? Remote work, remote learning, um, lots of those tools, food delivery, delivery infrastructure. I don't know about you, but I order more stuff on Amazon and from other online sources today than I ever have, right? We order everything now, including our groceries. So all of those businesses have COVID tailwinds. So if you're raising money today, how do you position your business so that it's a business that's going to do well in a time of COVID or post-COVID? And I do believe that a bunch of this stuff, while some of it may be there, you know, feels like it's there just because of COVID, it's sort of like squeezing the tube of toothpaste. Once the, once the toothpaste out, you can't get it back in the tube, right? Once people have learned that we can, you're in Toronto, I'm in Chicago, we're having a face-to-face meeting. I didn't have to get it on an airplane. This is great. I assure you that two years from now, three years from now, if we email each other and say, hey, let's, let's get a meeting together, the answer is going to be, when do you have time for a Zoom, not when can you fly to Chicago, right? Hopefully, we'll have in-person meetings again at some point. But our board meetings that are via Zoom are great. I don't have to travel. They're more efficient. I would like to be able to see people in person. Food delivery, you know, yeah, maybe it'll go down a little bit when COVID comes back. But at so many people who never ordered food before on their smartphones are comfortable doing it and doing it on a regular basis, grocery delivery, remote work, remote learning, et cetera. So I would position my company if I were trying to do that. What are the, what are the features of my company that are gonna do well in this COVID and post COVID world? Mm-hmm. COVID really from, a tech, from our perspective, accelerated adoption of technology in so many ways. Like we were gonna be on Zoom meetings at some point, but it changed in the middle of March from a luxury to a necessity. And it just accelerated that adoption. It accelerated the adoption of remote learning. It accelerated the adoption of, you know, delivery and e-commerce in a, in a, at a rate that we've never seen before. Back in 2000 with the first internet bubble, everybody said, oh, every, you're gonna buy everything over the internet. And I think at the end of that year, still like less than 1% of the GDP was conducted on the internet. You know, it, it didn't it didn't happen that quickly. It took time. It happened really quickly in March. With all your experience that you have, do you have any quotes you live your life by or think of often? Yeah. So there's one that I think is so important. And it is that the longer the time horizon you use to evaluate a decision, the smarter the decision you're going to make. Let me be specific. So... Brad Feld talks about this in startup communities, and he talks about how it's a generational exercise. You have to think about how do I make this community better 20 years from now? And that doesn't mean, by the way, that when you're five years in, that you're thinking about 15 years from now, you're then thinking 20 years from then, right? You're always looking, how do I make the world better in 20 years? And I believe that when you make decisions that are long-term benefit, you will make better decisions, especially in business right? If you have the luxury of being able to make a decision, what's going to make this company stronger in five years? And you do those things, you will ultimately have a much better business. For you personally, if you have the luxury of not having to say, which job is going to give me the most salary next week, but rather which one is going to put me on a path to get me to where I want to be five or 10 years from now, you're going to make a better decision. Unfortunately, we all don't have that luxury all the time, right? You personally may need more money today in your job because you don't have enough to 
pay your student loans, pay your mortgage, put food on the table, and you've got to optimize for the short run. It's okay when you have to. There's some people who have nothing and have to make poor decisions in order to stay alive that moment. I mean, there are people who will do things that are illegal, like, you know, uh, rob a store or, or, you know, snatch someone's purse, not because they're necessarily a bad person, but maybe that's the only thing they have that they can do to eat that day and they're starving, right? And so when you're forced to make these decisions for short-term gain, they're usually really poor decisions. When your business is in a situation where it has to make short-term decisions for short-term gain, oh my God, we're running out of cash. We can't do our business model. We're gonna hire all our, our employees out as consultants because we're gonna get some short-term cash. You may have to do that to stay alive. And that's okay if you have to, but if you have the luxury of being able to make decisions that will be better over the long run, over that longer time horizon, you're gonna make much wiser decisions. And so I always think about not what's best for today, what's best for tomorrow, next month, next year, or 20 years from now. And that's what guides my decision-making. Awesome. Great wisdom. Thanks for sharing that, Troy. It's a great pleasure having you on our show. Um, and I appreciate uh, you, you giving some time. Uh, so thank you, everybody, who's going to be listening. Uh, this was another episode of Off the Record. It's a podcast with the goal to build a community of founders and VCs around it so that they can help build build better businesses together. Uh, so thanks again, uh, Troy, and I'll uh, see everybody next time on the next episode. We are proud.